There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Hello, it's an artist podcast number 508. I'm in Anaheim right now because today is Friday, the 18th of April, and it's WonderCon weekend. Um, the 19th and 20th uh, are also WonderCon days here in Anaheim, California. I enjoy WonderCon. I've been going to WonderCon since it was in Northern California and then moved down here to Southern California a couple of years ago. It's a good convention. It's not, it hasn't been, um, hasn't been touched too much by a lot of big film and television companies yet, so... Uh, the floor is, uh, it really is just the vendors. It's just vendors selling their wares, and uh, it's a nice community. I enjoy it. We're doing our Nerdist panel Sunday at noon in the arena, and then I'm doing a signing at the Nerdist booth from 2 to 3. Yes, we have a booth. We have a snazzy booth. Um, Come by and say hi. If I'm not there, you can molest the Lego version of me, which is sitting on a couch, Uh, and, uh, and a good time will be had, hopefully by all. At least by most. If you, if, if you can get most, you're in good shape. All is a great goal to have. But you don't know. You don't know what, what, what the different dynamics of a group are. Maybe one person is hungry or one person has to go to the bathroom. That's why you gotta, that's why you gotta take uh, whatever sort of rubber katana or... Where are you going with this? What? I don't even know how you got here. <laughs> what are you, what are you even talking about anymore? I was just telling people how to deal with someone in their group who was um, dragging the group down because they weren't having a good time. At a convention? Yeah. Take their badge and kick them out. Yeah. Well, the cold hand of justice. <laughs> Thy name is Skydart. Uh, I would like to thank for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast, Carbonite.com. Carbonite is online backup for all your files. Backs up in the background uh, on your computer desktop, and you don't even you don't even know what's happening, but it gets done. And then uh, all your stuff is backed up, and then when tragedy strikes, you can access all your files um, wherever you go. And you can do that with the, the Carbonite app, or you can do it on your computer. Um, start your free trial at Carbonite.com today. There's no credit card requ- required. It is a free trial. Use the offer code NERDIST. You're going to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com. The offer code for two free bonus months is NERDIST. This episode is Brian Henson. Brian Henson, who the very first Nerdist offices were at the Henson lot. Uh, I've known Brian for a few years now. Uh, I love the Henson family, and it is... uh, Although there were stories that Brian tells in this podcast that I had not heard before um, about Jim. They're promoting uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's Tuesdays at 10 p.m., but uh, it was a good... I gotta say, these, these podcasts... I know I should probably just go have conversations with people in life, but for some reason, it's just become a really good excuse. I mean, if you enjoy listening to these, that is a nice bonus, um, using the offer code NERDIST. But but for me, it's actually been a really fantastic way to catch up with people that I normally um, 
I, I don't know why our schedules just get busy and it's, you know, we're always in work mode and having a work reason to catch up on a personal level is, seems like a nice excuse to get together. So uh, here we go. This is Nurse Podcast number 508 with Brian Henson. Now entering Nerdist.com. So she's in Boston right now, so she's sending me the same picture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, almost identical. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a damn, it's a damn cool dog. Wow, we met him out her outside. Yes, it's 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 been fun and challenging because are we recording now, Katie? Good. It's been fun and challenging because I've never had a girl dog before, and with a girl dog, there's no. Uh, there, there is no warning when pee is going to fly out of her body. With a boy dog, they sort of sniff, and then like a leg starts to go up, and you go ah, and then you can scoop them up. But with, but with, uh, with Leica, it's just she's sitting there, and all of a sudden, it just like it's just like the the bomb uh, hatch opens, and woof, it just shoots out. You're like, how did that? It's like a magic trick. <laughs> it's a magic trick. So it's been it's been it's been I've been a little more challenging training her, but uh, but she is adorable. Do you have dogs? I have two, yes. You have two dogs? Yeah. I have a Jindo that I got from a shelter like like you did. Yep. And when I got her, they thought it was they said it's a mixed shepherd. And um then I got it home and I uh brought it to the vet and the vet said, No, no, this isn't a mixed shepherd, it's a Korean Jindo. Oh wow. Which is very different, yeah. That's cool. They're very territorial. Lovely dog though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So she's, she's protective really of you and the family. Yeah, she's a great guard dog, but really good with people. I cannot bring another dog into the house, though. Except oh. I did get. Then I got a second dog, a um, but a, but that one, I actually bought as a newborn, so I knew what it was, and it's half cocker spaniel, half golden retriever. Oh wow, that's really cool. And so did the other dog. Was the other dog What's like? With it? Well, actually, the reason why I didn't get another dog from a shelter was I I went to find what it, what breed is the most passive. Because <laughs> everybody said with a Jindo, they said you better find the most passive dog you can find. So he's really, really passive. So you, so you had to hand, you handpicked that dog to make sure that the Jindo wouldn't, wouldn't be like <laughs> this is not happening in my house. Not cool. Um, we essentially have been neighbors twice. We were residential <laughs> neighbors, and then we were work neighbors because Nerdist's first offices were at the Henson lot. That's right. Which is a such an amazing historical piece of that that lot. You're you're living on a museum, basically. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's we were um, an interesting story. We suddenly had to move out of the property we were in, the company in 1991, and it was because we 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 woke up one well. We filed a suit against Disney. Yeah. After, after my dad died, we, we, he, he was going to sell the company to Disney. Then we couldn't complete the deal. That, and and D- Disney and Henson decided, we can't complete this deal. So we scuttled the deal and weren't going to sell the Jim Henson company to Disney. Anyway, they, 
they wanted to keep all the theme park attractions, but they wouldn't negotiate. And it was a, so we filed a suit. And then at six o'clock in the morning, our lawyers in New York filed the suit and called and said, Somebody just t- called me literally at 6.30 in the morning and said, somebody just told me you're in Disney-owned offices and you don't pay rent. And I said, well, yeah, because we were, you know, we were, we were in these merger discussions and, you know, everybody's been, but yeah, that's true. And I said, well, then they own all of your files. <laughs> you have to leave. You have to get everything out of there before they lock the doors. I thought, oh, no. So we had to move out. So we moved our offices in about two hours at 6 o'clock in the morning, 6 to 8 o'clock in the morning. And we were in Raleigh Studios. And I didn't like it very much for for the company. It wasn't really – the type of space wasn't really right for the Jim Henson company. But we moved in thinking, well, we'll be here like four weeks while we find a good place. And we looked and we looked for a space that was right, that felt like a good fit for the Jim Henson Company. And it was eight years. It took us eight years to, oh my to find that lot. But when the Charlie Chaplin studio, when that came on the market, basically we had a real estate agent who was looking for us and looking for us to find a space that we would like. And he called us and said, it's just come on the market. So we went and got it very quickly. So, but it is wonderful, and it, and it's and it's fitting because it's it's Charlie Chaplin's studio. He built it with his brother. It's the first studio he built, and um, it's there on La Brea and Sunset, and um, and now over the gate is you, there's a big Kermit the Frog who's dressed like Charlie Chaplin. So now it's the Henson <laughs> it's the Henson Studio, but we but we celebrate the Chaplin history. But it always looks like he's tipping his hat to the strip club across the street. <laughs> well, it probably is. You know. I don't think we ever thought of that. I have a a strip club. I have a a strip club next to my house, my apartment in New York City as well. And my daughter said to me, Daddy, what is it with you and strip clubs? (laughs) There's always a strip club next door. It's not me. They just keep popping up there. I don't have anything to... I, I I never really explored all of the recesses of that lot. But it's, it's incredible to me that... You could just walk into an office and like, oh, there's a Skeksis just right there. And just it's right there. Like not even I would think, why is that not behind bulletproof glass? Why are there not armed guards? They're just these original creations and puppets just just out amongst the amongst human beings <laughs> who can breathe on them. Well, yeah. Well, it's nice to have them out where people can see them. The truth is, after after that. one of those big movies or Farscape, stuff like that, we can fill a warehouse with all the creatures and the set pieces that you'd think, oh, they're all fantastic. You should keep them forever. But the, but the truth is, you know, we have to get rid of a lot of stuff that you'd think, oh, don't. You can't get rid of that. But at a certain, after the company's been around 50 years, it's amazing how much stuff there is so it's really great when we can put stuff all right so i'll I'll have i'll take a skeksis and uh i'll take a rolf no i know but this uh, is the problem we can't really give it away i mean what happened was we gave away a gobo uncle charlie matt (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna start listing off things that i might be able to have but we've had weird things like at one point somebody said oh you're throwing away all this stuff what we're doing farscape down in australia oh you're throwing away all this cool stuff do you mind if i take it i was like "Ah, all right take it and then it shows up on eBay. Oh, well, then yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And then that, that's that a problem. You want so, it to go... To, you want, <laughs> well, that's, a, that's the thing about collectibles is that you... It's why it's hard for me to... I don't like to throw things away, but I know that if I can give something to someone who will value it and not try to make a buck off it, then that to me is like, oh, well, that's where that thing belongs. It belongs with... It belongs in a museum. <laughs> it belongs with people who will, who will take care of it and, and treasure it. 
and actually though talking about museums we did recently it was my my mother really was pushing hard for and figured it all out really before she died and she died a year and a year ago and um but now a lot of the original Muppets are at Smithsonian, and that was something that she really spearheaded. The original Kermit's at Smithsonian, uh, the originals, all the Sam and Friends puppets, which was the first show that they were doing when my dad was 19, uh, are at the Smithsonian, as well as uh, Ernie and Bird, a few others. And then uh, a big substantial collection of puppets will be at uh, the, uh, puppet- this, uh, the Atlanta Puppetry Center. Center for Puppetry Arts, thank you. The Atlanta Center for Puppetry Arts. And uh, they're building, they're working on their facility, so you can't really view a lot of it right now. And then the Museum of Moving Image in New York and Queens has a lot of the collection of puppets as well. So she really, she recognized this stuff is going to, if it just stays in storage, uh, that's not right. So she really wanted to make sure uh, things ended up in good places and she yeah and i'm really happy with that now how did they survive like how did because i i saw at the lucas archives i saw what i think was the original yoda yeah and he was not looking too good it was just fall it was like well it's uh the puppets the rooney (laughs) uh, that didn't end up well the poor this poor little puppet was just like you know well dust they go to well the, the puppets last a long time the ones that are made of fabric and ping pong balls and stuff like that. The about the only thing that gets really old on a Muppet is certain types of rubber cement get brittle. But and that can be a problem. But that's relatively easy to repair. The the what we call the realistic puppets, the creatures for Dark Crystal mm-hmm. and Labyrinth and all that, the skins on those are are molded foam latex. And in order to, you inject the liquid foam into the mold, and then it, it sets into this lovely, flexible foam that's like skin, and then you can paint it, and that's the foam latex skins that we started doing at Dark Crystal. The problem is the chemical that you need to put in the foam latex to make it set when it's in the mold also is going to eventually disintegrate the foam. Sure. So you have to rinse it. You rinse it as well as you can, and 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 then... And then you dry it out and you paint it. But depending on how well you rinsed it, the foam skin is going to last anywhere from 15 years to 25 years. But literally, one day you can open up the box and there's a creature. And then a month later, you can open up the box and there's dust. Because oh. <laughs> it, it literally disintegrates from the inside out. So the last thing to disintegrate is the, the painted finish. And so they, the skin is... Um, just come apart. Unfortunately, so it's so natural. In it's a kind way. of poetic. <laughs> it is. Well, it kind of is. It's like the, the foam latex. Those kind of more realistic puppets actually have a lifespan. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of cool. It's just sort of like uh, cherish these while you can, kind of a thing. I mean, I, I uh, the strangest thing for me was the uh, the first time that I ever worked with any of the Henson puppets was. When we did the Ben Folds video, I'd never actually worked with a- any of them. And when we produced this, the Ben Folds video and, uh, and then, you know, it's when you see them just when you see the puppets on the, you know, just like waiting to, to be activated, they just look like puppets. But the second they, the hands go in, they, like the, they come to life. It's the strangest I've never, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I meet famous people sometimes, Brian, but, but there's no experience to me like the first time that a uh, fraggle looked at me or the first time 
like Swedish Chef. Uh, you know, we shot something like Swedish Chef, but the first time they look at you and you, you're just like, <laughs> it, just, it just hits you on this insane level. Are you immune to that at this point, or does it still have uh, an effect? Well, it's been what I always grew up with. It was always what my dad was doing. I have a completely different relationship with puppetry than than probably most people do. I would imagine. Because to me, it was my dad was a very hardworking guy, and he, he was always clearly a very hardworking guy as far back as I remember. So it was it was important, you know. The puppets the puppets were important with with my dad, and to me as a kid, I didn't have a sort of light feeling about the puppets to me they were important and it was cool and interesting and and hard work and it required rehearsing through the night my father would rehearse for you know all night long and not go to bed and then and then get in the car and then go to the studio and to to shoot something and and so i had a so i have a lot of respect for it and and to me the ability of a puppeteer to put a puppet on and have it instantaneously come to life as a thinking being because that's kind of the the big thing it's not when when the way I would say you know you're looking at a good puppeteer versus you know you you're not looking at such a good puppeteer is uh, a, a puppeteer can will make a puppet move and that can be entertaining a good puppeteer puts the puppet on and the instant they've got their hand in there and they're settled the puppet's thinking and you look at it and you and you know what the puppet's thinking and that that I think is is um impressive and impactful even to me but it's like the art form that's like okay you're in the then you've you've done it and and i've trained a lot so many puppeteers over the years that that's what i'm waiting for i'm waiting for them to get to that place and and how is that i mean what do you how do you even start that process well it's um for for us it's a it's well it's an interesting process and the training of puppeteers what it was historically in the company was we would train in the technique of puppetry, which is how to work a puppet utilizing a monitor that shows you what the camera is seeing. Don't look at the puppet, look at the monitor. So you see what the audience is seeing. Don't, don't, and, and lip sync convincingly, move the mouth when the voice is, keep it in sync, make sure it's standing straight, that it has weight. When it's walking, make sure it steps like it has legs. All of these are like um, tricks to make it look more and more convincingly alive or move convincingly alive. The thing about puppets is you, you want them to not look alive with the Muppets right. when, and, and puppets. With, when we do the creatures like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, we wanted them to look like they were alive. But with the puppets, you don't want them to look alive. You want That's part of the magic is it's clearly inanimate until it's performed and then it's a, a, an illusion of life that is very entertaining and, and stimulating. But we would, we would teach the puppeteers the technique of puppetry, the technique of puppetry, the technique of puppetry, and then we would hope that they had that instinct of performance that would make them good performers in terms of character development and and um, and acting ability, and we would train twenty puppeteers for everyone who could do it, and and so we trained hundreds and hundreds of puppeteers to keep one out of twenty, and nowadays what we do, which has been really successful for the last six or seven years, and you've seen our Puppet Up show. Oh yeah, it's great. So, well, Puppet Up is now the way we train puppeteers. So. They're trained in, they, they train as puppeteers for the technique of puppetry, and they train in improv comedy, yeah. because improv comedy is all about developing a character 
with, without, moment. right, very, very quickly. It's not the actor's technique of developing a character where, where you build the character from the ground and, and it can take you three or four weeks to do it in a confident way. With, with improvising, you, you need to do a, a convincing level of character development almost instantaneously. And so we train in both improv and puppetry simultaneously, and, and that gives us a much higher hit ratio. We basically... We basically anybody who gets all the way through it is a good is a good puppeteer. Anybody who makes it the company level at, at in the puppet up troupe. Now, Pu- puppet up was really interesting because the first time I saw it, it was years ago. It was years ago, and I saw it at the um, the Avalon or whatever it's called. Is it still the Avalon? It, I think it's still called the Avalon, the yeah. one on Vine. Yeah, yeah, the one on Vine, and uh, it was unbelievable. Patrick Bristow was kind of directing it, and there were a bunch of great um, improvisers and. Uh, but it was also the show was filthy, which was I, mean, I loved. But I was like, oh my god, I didn't know. You know, it, it was interesting to see this this section of the kind of the Henson alternative brand, which was a little more adult adult humor. And so, was there any was there ever any resistance from people like, why do you, how dare you say the f bomb on stage? Or did, what, because it was hilarious. But well, the interesting thing is, we didn't necessarily intend that what had happened was i think it was around 2003 2004 it it, i felt like the puppeteers had sort of tried to make the whole process a little bit too formulaic and it was losing the spark that Mm -hmm. it used to have with my dad and frank oz and stuff like that and the writers weren't didn't know how to write in that spark and and the performers were only doing what the writers were writing and it had and it was just getting tough to make it funny anymore so i wanted to just create a whole new tone of comedy for puppets like my dad created the muppet tone of comedy in the world of variety shows and and carol burnett and those kind of shows that's and then he created the muppet show we needed something that was funny for now and um so I called Patrick Bristow and, and said, do you think you can, I think I've got to find this tone of comedy from the performers. I can't just keep looking to writers to come up with what's funny for puppets. It's got to happen in an organic way. So he said, geez, I don't know if that'll work because that's really <laughs> weird. It was a really weird idea to do improv comedy with puppets. And, but we tried it and it was working really, really well. And it wasn't necessarily going to be blue, it's just that was when you're improvising, it's just very funny to to not censor yourself oh, as a absolutely. comedian and just let it come out. And we try to keep the show classy. We're not shock comedy. No, adult. no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But but also, you know, a lot of what happens um, in the in these types of improvised games are, are the audience kind of directs where oh, they want it to go. Yeah. So, you know, that's why like. Oh, we need a location. Your balls. Oh, all right. You know, it's like, yeah. so they, they just, you know, they, they were feeding off as good improvisers do. They were sort of feeding off the energy of the, of the crowd. It was fantastic. I saw, I saw the show a bunch of times. Yeah. No, it was. Yeah. And you get really, yeah, the audience says, but then we try to make it classy. Yeah. Try to, but you have to try to do what the audience is asking, but keep, make it classy. I remember one was, um, what's the, what the suggestion from the audience was tell us a, Tell us a, lo- a, a really bad location for a date. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that one. I'm doing one that's even worse. So we, the suggestion we were asking for is tell us a really terrible location for a date. And the suggestion was a certain California governor's 
anus. Sure. Of course. That, <laughs> that was a, a suggestion. That would be a really bad and, place no, for a date. Yes. And so um, Patrick just said, okay, and over to the performers. And so lights up, and it's a, a, you know, a guy and a girl puppet standing there, and the guy just goes... Wow, who would have known there was a, a private bowling alley here? <laughs> and that was it. It was like huge applause, end the scene. <laughs> like, you know, what, what else can you do? <laughs> yeah. what, what else can you do? So, you know, we, we said, uh, you know, we, but the show does, does get dirty. But the truth is, when I was a kid and anybody who watched the Muppets being performed, Frank and my dad had really naughty sense of humor you know they and 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 that's what they were doing what we do with puppet up on stage in front of an audience is what my dad and richard hunt and jerry nelson and frank oz were doing before the actor called the director called action and after the director (laughs) called cut was precisely that and in fact that's the way the characters were developed you know miss piggy and kermit's relationship is developed in an uncensored way but then written in a censored way Fozzie's insecurities are developed in an uncensored way, but then written in a censored way. And you can sense that. And, you know, when you watch the early Muppets, you can sense there's a naughtiness that's underneath it, a pretty sophisticated adult naughtiness in those characters that are are presenting themselves. That's always why the Muppets felt kind of edgier, or edgy is a bad word, um... Uh, cooler and weirder and a little more irreverent than like um, Walt Disney characters, right. you know. And it, and it, there is a naughtiness that's underneath there. So you were asking, did the audience did, had people push back and said, "How could you do this?" I certainly thought that that would happen. And when we went out and started doing shows, I thought this is really dodgy for us to be doing this under the Jim Henson name. And um, oddly enough, I don't think I've ever had a review. That got upset. I, and, I, and when we went to New York, because we went to, after we were playing with the show, developing the show for a couple of years, I opened it off Broadway in New York and left it there for about four months to develop it into a, a bigger, more substantial show, which is the Puppet Up that now, when people go out and see Puppet Up, that's, that's the show that they're, that they're seeing. And I remember saying to all the performers, look, now we're really doing, now we're no longer going to comedy festivals right. where people are expecting it to be dirty. Now we're going to be in a theater off Broadway <laughs> and, you know, expect the, the reviews that say Jim Henson would be rolling in his grave. And... Not only did we not get that response, I, there was one critic, one Muppet critic who loved my father so much and loved everything he did so much that anything we have done since, he hates. <laughs> and I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to say his name, but he's well known. Hates everything that I did. Vicious, ruthless in his opinions of my work. No, he comes and sees the show. I find out afterwards. Somebody afterwards said, you know, so-and-so was in the audience. I was like, oh, great, here we go. And now, now we'll get the review. And he said it was fantastic. It, nothing really continued in the, the, the legacy of Jim Henson like this. You know, oh, the, that's so because great. It, because it really, did, it really does capture that original Henson energy that had to be censored in the 50s and 60s. Everything was censored. But, but if it was in a time where you didn't have to be censored, like today, this is kind of probably closer to the voice that you would have heard out of my dad. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. It's something about these adorable little objects with adult themes and adult problems and adult I- I- issues 
that you know it, it's <laughs> they're more they were more human than even a lot of human characters that were on television in a weird sort of way, which you're allowed to do with animation and, and puppetry. There's a, there's, a level of, um, there's a level of separation that I think people will allow that if they were, if they were real people, they go, this is too real or it's too gritty. But if they're published, like, oh, it's sort of like South Park. Like, oh, no, but they're animated. So it's, you know, like so, much, there's so many more things are acceptable because there's this layer of separation yeah. between reality. And- no, I think, I think that's right. When you're an actor... And you go on stage, the audience is still going to make all the assumptions that they do of people all the time. I mean, when, when you walk around and you see somebody on the street, your brain is doing an enor- making an enormous set of assumptions by analyzing that person. You're looking at the way they're dressed, the color of their skin, how clean they look, what their hairstyle is, and your ma- how they move, what their rhythm feels. And you're making all sorts of assumptions. And as soon as it's... And, and that already has put you in too intimate a relationship with them. So even with an actor on stage, you, you already have an intimacy. You've already made a ton of assumptions. And therefore, if they start to try to portray a bigoted character for comedic sake, but also to make a point, you may take offense at it because you're already in too intimate a relationship with them. Yeah. Whereas with a puppet or an animated character, your, your brain can't do any of that stuff. So instead, even as an adult, you're going to watch a puppet or an animated character with your mind fully open because you can't, your, your brain wasn't able to do all of that categorizing that it normally does. And, and because of that, then the puppet or the animated character can start... Doing all can start doing material that goes into all sorts of places that you would find offensive if actors were doing it because because you are open you can stay open to to watch it run its course obviously if you're offense if you do a piece on prejudice or something like that uh, and it's a comedic sketch that could be offensive and and stays offensive and stay and then ends and it's still offensive then you will have offended the right, audience right right but if you start in a place that could be offensive but but you resolve out you watch that character get its come up and so you you, yeah. you you're able to tell the rest of the story um, the audience really really appreciates it and and in such a way that you can't really do with actors because because they're they're willing to see where it's going to go or yeah. they'll go like uh, because they can't they're not already mad at that right. guy right <laughs> <laughs> wait I'm not done I'm not done I'm making we're all on the same side please stop throwing things oh god uh, the, the the first um, kind of inkling that I thought you know like oh I want to try to figure out if there's anything to do with the with the Henson company. I mean obviously, you know, my entire life. I mean, I can't think of anyone who is of my generation that's in comedy that was not influenced in some way by uh by the Hensons. I mean, I just don't know. I don't know how that's even I don't I mean, I guess it's possible, but I can't really picture it. When um, um I went and saw at the uh what is now Cine Family there was there had been this there was this I guess maybe it was a, a weekly Henson retrospective of all these old films that I had never seen before of like the like the original pitch of the Muppet Show and these. Oh, was this Craig's Craig's piece? Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Oh my God! It, and and it wasn't this stuff wasn't all over the YouTubes yet, so I just hadn't seen. But that that one it was the one pitch where they're basically. Uh, describing what the Muppet Show could be, there's like a news reporter, 
And he basically he, he calls out all the executives from that network and said, you know, and the people who greenlight this project will be hailed as geniuses, <laughs> and they'll make all the money in the world by and, see, and right. it just evolved. by selling ads, by yeah, selling, yeah, yeah, exactly. by selling kitchen cleaning fluids <laughs> and, <laughs> was, and things that you don't need, but you're going to buy because the show rates so well. No, it's, it's so funny because there wasn't really there wasn't really a show. It was just this one puppet pitching what would happen if they greenlit the project. And how and no, it's a famous piece. And that they my dad didn't did. greenlight it. No, and they probably fucking hated themselves <laughs> when it went over to England and then came back. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, it was. My father had a tough period there, and it's very interesting if you read the di- the, the the biography about him now. Even I was reading stuff that I didn't know. I always kind of thought the first show... Because the first show that my father would talk about that he and my mom did was Sam and Friends, which was late-night comedy. It's very... It's kind of cool and funky and adult. And then I'm reading the biography, and it's like, no, he was also doing, like, two kids' shows during the day that he hated doing. <laughs> so, but Sam and Friends he loved. Now, when he did Sesame Street, he only wanted to do it because he could do it with a more adult take on all of those characters which of course is why everybody loved sesame street they were like wow it works on two levels it's because all those puppets are working on an adult level it's not they're you know oscar the grouch isn't going oh dear gosh darn it you crazy thing you know it's not kids entertainment for kids it's all of those characters kind of have an an adult um underpinning to them that makes them entertaining to adults and kids can also follow them and it makes them more impactful for kids too but at the time, he had always been on the Ed Sullivan show. He was doing ad campaigns. He, would, he was a variety act, and, and, and he thought of his audience as adult. That's what he was doing. Well, adult, but family-friendly, sure. but, but adults, you know, and he didn't want to just be a children's entertainer. So he did Sesame Street. It was such a huge hit. And he was like, okay, that's great. Now I'm going to go do, get my primetime show on because that's what he always really wanted. And he did two pilots of The Muppet Show, and they were both passed on by all three networks, basically with the same message back to him, which is, Jim, you're, you're that kid's guy. You're doing Sesame Street. It's, you know, you're great, but it doesn't make sense for a, a, a fan of an, an adult audience. And it really got him upset. And that's why he went on to Saturday Night Live. He was on the first season of Saturday Night Live. Basically, and the, actually, the, the first pilot of, of The Muppet Show, that was the response he got. So when he did the second pilot, he called it Sex and Violence with The Muppets. <laughs> because he was just trying to say, it's not a kid's show. Don't tell me I would only buy this if I can put it on Saturday morning. <laughs> you know? and, and it still didn't work. So then he went and did the first season of Saturday Night Live, knowing that the whole brief on Saturday Night Live was, we are going to push, push the censorship laws so hard, we might all end up in jail. I mean, that was really, every, everybody went into Saturday Night Live going, we're going to make the edgiest show that has ever been on television and it's going to be a shocker yeah. <laughs> and, and he was like good put me there <laughs> <laughs> so he went and did the first season of Saturday Night Live but then halfway through the season that's when um, Lou Grade called him from London and said look I've seen your pilots and, and they're great so bring your people Bring your crazy people to London, and I'll make your Muppet show. And that's exactly what happened. And then it sold back. Was it back in the syndication back to the United States? Well, then States? Lou Grade wouldn't sell it back to the networks because they had passed on everything. Instead, he, was, he sold it region by region. 
which is why it was on at 7.30. It was on at 7.30 p.m., which is not the time not that the main time. network yeah. is programming. It's every local territory. It was called primetime access. And, and it, every territory would buy the show that they played at 7.30. And he, and he sold to all the territories in America. And they, they all basically went with Monday night or Sunday night. He was trying to get all of America to, to buy it and put it on the same night, which would have been a huge feat. Yeah. But, but he did get them. I think it was basically either on Monday night at 7.30 or Sunday night at 7.30. The, genius, much in the, the accidental country. genius part about that <laughs> is that that's the perfect time for like kids and their parents yeah. to be able to, oh, we're having dinner. We're sitting in front of the TV. It's the 70s. So it's like we watch television. We watch television while we eat dinner. And uh, and it like that and also thematically what was happening in television at that time, you you know between SNL and Norman Lear and then this whole like this kind of you know a much more realistic approach to character development on television is happening. It's like it, the the timing of it couldn't have been better for this yeah. to to break through. I mean, like it really what he was in the right era to break through. But certainly all the networks rude the fact that they'd all passed on it twice. Oh man, that must have been such a sweet. Because I'm sure he ran into those people. And they're like Jim. Ah, oh, we knew it. We knew this was going to be a big hit. No, you didn't. You passed on it. That's no, what television and does. I think wasn't it? Oh, now I'm going to get my facts a little wrong. I think Michael Eisner was at CBS at the time, so basically was instrumental in passing on the Muppet Show, <laughs> and then had to watch as all of the owner-operated stations. Bought the Muppet Show for seven thirty p.m. and and got the number one ratings success. So what are you doing at this time? What are you doing when this is happening? While this is all happening? Oh, I was real young. Uh, let's see. Muppet Show started in seventy six, finished in eighty one, and I went to boarding school in seventy seven. So what happened was my father. He was going. He went to London to do Muppet Show in the first season, and we would just go and visit. And and then and here's the crazy that and I didn't like it. And I and looking back, it's because at 14 years old, I guess I was, I didn't understand the British sense of humor, which is very dry and appears that they're making fun of you. It seems like they're always teasing you and they're actually being affectionate. But at 14, I didn't get that at all. So I would go and visit my dad and, and in that first season and, you know, my dad would say, oh, so-and-so in the lighting department's daughter is the same age as you and she's having a party and, and she's invited you. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then I'd go to a party where all these other kids would make fun of me, I thought. <laughs> and I would just get more and more, like, pissed off. And then I'd go home and I, I'm now, I hate England. And so then the following year, my dad decided to move the family to London. And I said, I'm going to boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> rather, than, rather, than, rather than do that. And, uh, and so I went to boarding school, and then I would visit on the breaks, which is a, you know, a lot when you're in boarding school. You don't, you're in school less because you're less days because you're in classes more hours. And so I spent a lot of time in London, but I, was, but I was basically in boarding school. But the ironic part is the Muppet Show finished, and... Then they did Dark Crystal. And then I graduated from high school. I did half a year in college, fell in love with a woman in England who I met in Paris for one night and um, had to convince her that she should have fallen in love with me in the two hours that I'd met her <laughs> a year earlier. And I ended up being the one who moved to England. And then I married. I ended up marrying her. That was, she was my first wife. We, we didn't stay. We'd stayed together for 12 years, though. So when 
I, I was the one who ended up living there after all the rest of the family moved back to America. <laughs> and I was the one who said, I'm never going and, and, well, and grew to love it and figured out that they weren't actually making fun <laughs> of me, that they were trying to bond with me. <laughs> and I was rudely taking offense at everything they said. And you were just not having any of it. <laughs> did you, well, when did you start, I mean, when did you start the uh, puppeteering yourself? Was that from a, was that just a oh, part of your genetic five, makeup? You know, we were all, well, my dad was working all the time. So, there was five of us and we would visit and it was always okay there was i know that i've talked to other people who worked around my father who would say you know the weird thing was is that it was always made clear we all had to live with the fact that jim's kids might be anywhere <laughs> because he it didn't matter what he was doing he was going to have meetings he might take three kids with him if he was, if he was you know if it I, I one time he was very mad at me because he and frank had a meeting with jackie onassis and i was you know we were waiting in her office and i so i sat way back in the corner because which of course was inappropriate my dad shouldn't have been bringing me to me <laughs> while he's meeting with jackie onassis but he did because he just brought kids with him all the time and uh, and I just sat back in the corner, and they had their, you know, she came in, and then they stood up, and they shook her hand, and then they had the meeting. And afterwards, it was like the one time my father was so angry at me, and I said, what, what, what? And he said, you stand up. Jackie, Jackie Onassis walks in the room, you stand up. And I was like, well, what? I'm sorry, Dad. I was, just, <laughs> I was trying to sit in the corner and not be noticed. And he was like, you stand up. So every time, so now, so now I always stand up for women. (laughs) Absolutely, I always stand up for when women come into the room. And then, um, and then, uh, now I'm now my I'm married to Mia Sarah, and um, who I've also now been with a very long time, and 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 we have kids, and and we're very very happy. She takes offense when men open a door for her and let her walk through ahead of them. She's. And I keep, and she's convinced they just want to look at her butt. <laughs> she's convinced of it. So, so it's like she's hit me right on a raw spot because it's like my dad would have gotten so mad. You're if allowed I don't open though. The door but you're for allowed. You. You're married. You're allowed. That's okay. Like, just go through the door. <laughs> just go through the door. You can hold it open behind I'm, you. I'm shutting my eyes. I'm open shut the door. My eyes. Go through. Hold you're it behind through. you, I'm and I'll sh- get it. I'm shutting my eyes. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I didn't. It wasn't. I found out that you lived in my neighborhood because I recognized her first. Because obviously Ferris Bueller was like that movie. I was the perfect age for that movie. Um, yeah, you would have. I was the perfect age for Ferris Bueller. <laughs> you fell in love with my wife. I, absolutely. <laughs> but I also, I also fell in love with Ferris Bueller. And I also felt, we've had this long-standing... I don't know if she would get a kick out of this. Maybe not. She's probably tired of hearing about it. But we've had this long-standing theory on this show that Ferris Bueller... Um, is essentially Fight Club, and Ferris Bueller is a projection of Cameron Fry's psyche <laughs> that he does not exist. That's so that very you, funny. if you go, if you and and Mia would be the Helena Bonham Carter character. So if it's really a, the whole movie takes place essentially as in the, Cameron's at, bedroom. In Cameron's, he never left in the bedroom. Cameron's head. Yeah, he never left the bedroom. Yeah, and he goes back. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like when he goes back and he sees the when he sees the guy at the restaurant, and he's like, "Oh, was someone just here saying to be Abe Froman? Yeah, that was you. What?" <laughs> and then it, it's like all of the the walls of his reality come crumbling down. So that's that's my theory about that movie. I wonder. <laughs> <It's> really, <laughs> but I saw but I saw her in the neighborhood first, and I was like. Oh my god, Mia Sarah lives in the neighborhood. Like, oh, I think she's with Brian Henson. They're like, wow, really? And it was all around the same time 
that we started seeing pop it up, and you know, and then was, we came up to San Francisco. That was yes. all pretty, all within. The, oh no, San Francisco was a you few came years up to Sketch later. Fest a few years later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but we just started to have conversations with you know uh, at the time Janet and you and Nicole uh, at the Henson Company of you know what can we do. Because we were just so in, enamored of everything. And we brought Neil Patrick Harris to the Puppet Up show because he's a huge Henson fan. And it just all kind of matched Came together pretty together. quick there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, and that was Neil Patrick Harris' Dreams and Puppets. Those are some of the coolest pieces we oh, did. Oh, those were yeah. so great. Yeah. And really good. Now I'm seeing... Um, Every once in a while, Paul F. Tompkins will post an Instagram picture of this show that he's doing. And I, I totally... I see, like, oh, there's the hot dog character oh there's the little kind of anteater character like all the different characters are popping up now but i recognize all of them well well the way when when we created puppet up it was just organic it all just sort of fell together because to start with it was just a training workshop where i was just trying to find this voice of comedy and that then i could let writers watch and then writers could write better comedy for puppets and uh and then it just became a show, and it, it became a show in the weirdest way because we just said, well, let's put a show up for the company, and we'll invite friends. And some of the friends were producers of the Aspen Comedy Festival, and then at the end of it, they said, well, bring, that, bring your show up to the Aspen Comedy Festival. Well, it's not really a show. Well, bring whatever you just did up to the Aspen <laughs> Comedy That's sort of the way it happened. And the puppets we were using for the workshop were just all the puppets that didn't have jobs. So they were just all mixed together. So puppets from highly stylized artsy shows would be mixed with puppets of realistic animals, of puppets of people, and and a weird mixture of oddball puppets that don't belong in the same production. And historically, you know, my dad was such a... he, He was a graphic designer... Really, I mean, I think that's where he kind of thought his life was probably going to go. He, when he was in college, he thought, I'll, I'll hopefully, when I get past this puppet nonsense, I can finally design sets. <laughs> 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 and he would do, like, graphic ad campaigns and stuff like that. That's kind of what he, what, where... So, for him, the puppets were always very graphically careful, and they always worked well together. And the Puppet Up show is puppets that really don't belong together. But it helped it be adult comedy it's kind of like south park looks like bad animation that makes it more adult yeah you know and even simpsons when it first came out wasn't considered nice animation no, no, it was, no, it was like, real it's dirty. bad animation yeah and therefore it feels more adult and it the same thing sort of applied to puppets so we called that group of puppets the miscreant puppets the troublemakers the miscreants and the miscreants basically do more adult-themed comedy. So that show that you're talking about is called No You Shut Up. It's on this brand new channel called Fusion, which some people can get, and but if you have DirecTV, you can't get it yet. It's a new channel. But the miscreants are the guest, the guest panel of experts that Paul is talking to. And they talk about... Um, uh, topical subjects and they debate everything you know everything that other people are debating they debate with puppets and it's very very funny so you have this this essentially uh, this cast of uh, I mean miscreants for, miscreants for lack of a better <laughs> words like utility puppets they can be anything yeah none of them have locked in person they don't have like, an, like none of them have an identity they can be one minute right. they can be this thing and next minute they can be this thing yeah. so what's the what's the challenge or the difference in could you take one of the miscreant puppets and all of a sudden just make it well, just lock in a personality and be like, well, that's this character from now on. Or is that a different process between, you know, developing like a Kermit or a, or a Red Fraggle or, or you something? You know what? The, the truth is 
character development happens in so many it it basically can be driven a, a great vision for a character can come from a lot of different places it can come from the designer who designed the puppet can have a very strong vision of what it looks like and what its personality is and everything and puts it into the design and and right from the beginning Fozzie Bear was was like that. He was he he was a design before he was anything and 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 it was all it it all worked very cleanly. It really started with the design, I feel. But then you'll have times when the writer has, you know, Jerry Jewell was the head writer for the Muppets. He would he would have an idea for a character and he, and he would write on the page and it was so clear and everybody could feel it and then that would be the character. And then uh, and then the puppeteers often Pepe the Prawn is Bill Beretta's aunt. It's his <laughs> it's his impersonation of his of his of his wife's aunt. And and it's and it was very funny and he used to just do it himself and he said I got to put a puppet to this. Um and that's the way Pepe the Prawn came about. And so it can come from the per- performer, from the writer, from the designer, and then sometimes it just happens. And some of the best characters just happened that way, and 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 I can name in a, lot, in a lot of ways. That's the way Miss Piggy started. Miss Piggy was kind of one of a bunch of pigs, and kind of threw a wig on her. But and <laughs> Frank did her sometimes, and Richard Hunt did her a little bit. But Frank had a better angle, and then but it wasn't really working. And then and then Frank and Jim figured something out within the you know Frank figured out that that she's got a crush on Kermit and that she has a very high opinion of herself. <laughs> and then it all started working. And, and, and so, but that was one where the right puppeteer picks up a puppet and, and magic happens. And those to me, that's very much what all of the miscreants are. When you're watching Puppet Up, it's always puppeteers picking up a puppet and boom, it's just something happens. And we will take a miscreant and make it a star. I mean, we, we will. We do often go, okay, that's a great character. We're going to design something for it. And that'll now be what it is. It'll be that character and, and it will no longer be um, one of the miscreants. But, you know, with, and Frank described, described Miss Piggy wonderfully. What was it? Um, she basically is a truck driver that believes she's Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> 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 Which is where you do you get you get her turn every right, once in a yeah. while. Though. <laughs> you, know, yeah. she freak- you need someone to take care of the situation. Yeah, when yeah. she starts growling, the truck driver comes out, <laughs> <laughs> and then the hair goes back in place. And it's a uh, well, I remember because on an early episode of this podcast, we um, uh, basically assembled a Muppet episode where we had you know a handful of the performers, and they all. Uh, called in and then we have just conducted interviews and then we just sort of like we weaved it all together and some of the some of the stuff that we couldn't that we didn't use was amazing because it was sort of like what you were saying before about like oh it's just to the edge of what you you know it's it's a little dirty but then you just shave a little bit of that off and then it becomes okay Mm -hmm. but talking to dave gels about uh uh he was doing gonzo and i was like so what is he you know what is it that you like about a chicken, and he just he just goes, oh god, I don't know. I mean, you just uh, 
you know, just look with their, their leg, like where it goes all the way up, all the way up and just connects right to the end. It starts getting really gr- creepy. And I, I'm thinking it's amazing. And then afterwards, uh, the, the official Muppet folks were like, maybe don't put that part in there. Because it was so, like, it was, he really, it was so in detail. Right where the leg just connects to the underside. I mean, how could you not be in love with that? I mean, it was, but it was, he was so true it was so human for lack of a better word it was so true and it totally made sense i mean it was like it was like oh yeah this is this is the side of this is the inside of gonzo's head this is what he really (laughs) thinks about this about this thing well gonzo is very twisted yeah you know he's got very deep-rooted perversions Well, he has to. His very first act was going on stage and eating tires. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And he also, because Paul Williams was on the podcast a couple months ago, and he was he was just he was talking about you know Gonzo's this this in in the universe of the Muppets he's this kind of fish out of water. You don't know what you don't really know what he is, and he's you know you think maybe he's from somewhere else, and it's the whole like I'm going to go back there someday and all that and all that stuff. And so he he. He's a character that I, 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 I always identified somewhere between Fozzie and uh, Gonzo because, you know, Fozzie being a comedian and then Gonzo just being sort of this lovable outcast that, that you feel like, oh, you know, there's probably a dark side under there. <laughs> there's probably some dark stuff under there. No, he's the quintessential misfit. Yeah, yeah, he a... is. But so lovable, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, you're like, eh, I'm not really anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he's, yes, he's very odd. Did they, uh, was Which there... is, you know, and again, this is going back to when they're developing the relationship, it happens in an uncensored environment that then becomes censored. Like Piggy's attitude towards Gonzo, attitude towards Gonzo is always quite grossed out by him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's his perversions that gross her out. <laughs> she just knows that there's something about him that's not... She just doesn't want to be alone in the same room. It's just, it's just weird. It's just odd. I, uh, I don't want to be near your thoughts. <laughs> but just one more. No, shut up. I don't want to hear it. With the, with a lot of these character developments... Because obviously... So many of the characters, I guess, in any kind of puppet troupe, you can have a couple that have their own personalities, but then a lot of personalities sort of develop on how they complement every other character, I would imagine, right? I mean, like, there's not really... Gonzo doesn't work as well if he doesn't have that effect on Piggy or doesn't have this relationship to chickens or is not... It's like, where is he now? What is he always floating up there? Sure, why not? You know, like he has to, his effect on the other characters, his relation to them, that informs a lot about who, those, who he is as well. Sure. Gives you the opportunity to inform the audience. I mean, that's just good writing. You know, you, whenever you're writing and you have a core group of characters, you have, to, you have to write into the dynamic that they are interdependent, that they are going to be forced together. Yeah. And it gives you an opportunity to reveal their characters in 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 those moments. Yeah. I mean, it's so much of the character the the I've never been to the creature shops in New York, right? The, your actual creature shop is in New York. No, the creature shop is there is a creature is shop a creature in New York. Center. There is a creature shop here in Burbank. It's a little bit the the real roots of the creature shop was the big creature shop was in London, and it was the one that was started not formally for Dark Crystal. Right. And then after Dark Crystal, 
it was it formally became the creature shop and it was the london creature shop that got very big at one point and and was in hampstead and camden and at times had two or three hundred people working in it that was that was our big creature shop and at that time the new york shop was called the muppet workshop so we would we had two shops and specifically the muppets were made in new york at the muppet workshop the creatures, animatronics, and and more visual effecty characters, creatures were made in the creature shop in London. Then we opened up a creature shop in L.A. to service the L.A. industry without not needing to do it all the way from London, and that became the satellite shop for the London shop. And then when the problem with the London, the British industry in general is it just has these awful peaks and troughs, and and the industry goes completely dry for yeah. a number of years, and then it booms, and then it and then it goes completely. And it, and one of those dry spells, we had to close the London shop, and it was when the company was getting smaller over here, and it was getting a little unwieldy. So we closed that original creature shop and and beefed up the the LA shop. And that became the sole creature shop. And then when the, the managing of the Muppets moved over to Disney, and we were still doing puppets, that but, didn't we end up working be, out. but that we didn't weren't going to do Muppets, then the, the puppet workshop was in New York. And then we thought, you know, we're just going to call them both creature shops. So, so the New York workshop is also now called a creature shop. But traditionally, that was the Muppet workshop that became... The New York Creature Shop. So what is the is, is, is the actual development of the puppet process? Is that the basis for the sci-fi show? No, the sci-fi show is creatures, specifically. It's Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge. And we tried to do a little... It's, it's obvious when you're watching the show, but we really bifurcated the type of creatures, ca- characters we were creating for Dark Crystal. That was the big experiment that my dad did. That was what he wanted to do. The Muppets and hand puppetry in general is one kind of art form. It's The puppet is clearly inanimate. We were talking about this earlier. It's not an illusion of life. Kermit the Frog is not an illusion of life. He's clearly felt. His yeah. eyeballs are made of ping pong balls, and, and you can see all of that. And Fozzie is clearly fur fabric. He's fake as can be, and so is Kermit. And so, is, you know, Piggy, maybe a little less fake, but still pretty fake. <laughs> well, it's all those and, and, then, and then you bring it to life through puppetry, and that's part of the fun is bringing an inanimate sure. object to life. Dark Crystal was the beginning of the creature um, side of, of character creation in the Henson Company, where, where visually the creature is meant to look alive alive it's it is an illusion of life it's supposed to be autonomous and you just believe it's alive i mean we say to people look the easy way to remember is if you cut it and you think it should bleed that's a creature if you cut it and you think there's going to be stuffing in there that's a puppet (laughs) or if it bleeds and it's someone's arm (laughs) no but basically so it's a sort of a it's a different thing so the so the creature shop challenge is um it's the it's the 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 designers in that are creature designers. They're not building puppets because that's a different art form where the puppet is deliberately inanimate until you bring it to life with a puppeteer. With the creatures, you're still going to bring them to life with a puppeteer. But what you're trying to design is something that actually looks like it, it is alive. Yeah. It has history. It, it's, it's, if, you know, if it's an old creature, you can see that it's old. You can see it from the way it looks and, and the way it's designed and the way it's finished. So the Creature Shop Challenge is specifically the designers and builders of creatures 
And they have animatronics in them. They have extra movement and stuff like that. So it's more, the Creature Shop Challenge is not in the Muppet miscreant puppets area of our company. It's in the the creature fantasy side of our company, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Farscape, uh, Dinosaurs, uh, Storyteller, those, those kind of creatures is what the Creature Shop Challenge is. And, and so the, con- the contestants is a bad a word I don't like, but the, the, the creature designers who are participating in that, that's what they're doing. They're, they're designing and building creatures in a very short time. And then for a screen test, a film test, and in every episode, they're, they're given a brief by me to build a specific creature for specific, with specific criteria. And then at the end of the episode, there is a screen test where those creatures have to come to life in front of the camera and, mm-hmm. and be screen tested. And, and, that's what, and then every episode, one designer is eliminated and, and one designer wins. And the one that wins gets a job. In the creature shop. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so that you've already shot the show, and it's about... When does it air? It's airing. What do you mean? Is it airing now? We're three episodes in. Oh, Jesus. I don't get to watch television anymore. Actually, if you TiVo... The cool thing is... Well, part of it is... I, you know, I did all this publicity. It's sci-fi at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, and then in my house, it's on 9 o'clock, because DirecTV is on a different end. Yeah, you yeah, get that's it the at thing, there's no... So it's all like... These days, it's like you can't even tell somebody. Yeah, our, our, our show, our show's on. called At Midnight on Comedy Central, but in the Midwest, it's <laughs> uh, it's at eleven p.m. <laughs> because there's Central Time. Yeah. So then on, on top of the time zone, it's like, well, I don't know when the carrier's going to put this on. It's like, well, if you get the East Coast feed, it's on at nine. But if you get the West Coast feed, it's on at this. Uh, it's best just to say the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. on Tuesdays. So, uh, look, uh, look on your guide on your whatever your whatever your cable no, or so the Creature Shop Channel. It's on Tuesdays on Sci-Fi. And actually, they're, they're doing, like, every Tuesday, at some point, they'll repeat the episodes that lead up to it, sometimes very early in the morning, maybe in the middle of the night, so that if you, have, if you do TiVo, Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, for next Tuesday, your TiVo will pick up all the episodes so that you, could, you will have all four oh, good. By, by next Tuesday. Next Tuesday will be the fourth episode of eight. The first season is eight episodes, so we're almost halfway through. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun to develop... It gives you the opportunity to identify people that you wouldn't have known otherwise. It's always fun to find a new, oh, wow, this person was just hiding out in the world. Yeah, yeah, and they're great, and they deserve Oscars and stuff like that, and they'll never win them. And and that's part of what, early on, people have said to me, well, you should do a a, a, a reality show, and I've always thought, well... There's only a couple we can do where where you have these extraordinarily talented people that you don't see. One are the ones who are underneath the puppets. Yeah. And the other ones, to me, that are the most interesting and complex are the designer builders of the of the creatures. And so this is so this is the show that that points a light at, at those talents. And they're extraordinary. And they'll never win an Academy Award. They do occasionally, but they do for the wrong reasons. Like the the, the creature designer may have also done a, a prosthetic makeup. And therefore, they're in the makeup category oh, right. with the makeup artist, and they win an Academy Award, or yeah. or they have, or it's it, one of the creatures is actually goes all the way over your body and kind of qualifies as a costume, and therefore they can win an Academy Award for costuming. But it's always m- miss. It's they're winning awards by forcing them into categories they don't belong. But they really are the most extraordinary artists and people don't know about them and they just you know they just see the creatures on screen they don't know what went on before and and so it's always been an exciting place to point the spotlight at at and and i think it's i couldn't be happier with the show now because um 
uh, you know, my girlfriend's dad is a special effects guy, and he's been a special effects guy for decades. And he uh, his the his big thing now is like, meh. Now I just kind of stand behind people at computers and just point at shit. Like I don't, you know, like he as it was a guy who had to make stuff with his hands. The idea of practical effects, practical. It creatures. all has to happen in front of this camera. I, I, yeah. Strangely, I. I kind of I I really prefer practical effects to I'm like I'm more impressed by practical effects particularly now you know and and I have no like if I see a Twilight movie commercial I'm like they could have spent a little bit more money to make that fucking wolf look like it had weight you know like I get really upset about that and I just think like I would love to see I would love to see more practical creatures or practical effects in, in film. Well, I think what we'll see is more of a mix. There's clearly some very cool strengths to practical creatures. And to me, we always say in our company, we protect the performance of the characters so that we are a performance-based company as opposed to an animation-based company or something like that. And when you really put a creature in an environment, particularly if it's speaking you're protecting the, spot, the, the, the potential for spontaneity in a scene. As soon as you're doing CGI, the good ones can create the illusion of spontaneity, but there never actually was spontaneity. Sure. Ne- there was never an opportunity for something to happen that you didn't expect. Right. And, and really, great entertainment is having things happen that you hope will happen, but not the way you expected them to happen. And <laughs> in real life, that's what happens and that's what's intriguing and and fun and and when you're in a performance art form things will happen in the way that no you can have put four performers together and and no matter how in sync they are things will happen in a way that none of the four of them expected and that's part of what's fun and the great thing about doing creatures practically is you are protecting that spontaneity you do get that it really happened there really was chemistry in the moment it was real and it was captured by the camera and as soon as you do it all in CGI, you're, you, you, have to, you have to impersonate uh, spontaneity. But there's also real weaknesses, obviously, with animatronics. A lot of it's hard to make them speak as yeah. convincingly because you have to get all that mouth working perfectly in front of yeah. the camera. It's hard to make them have the expressions quite with the same level of subtlety because, again, all those motors have to work in front of camera. Hard to get them to walk around. Hard, you know, there's a lot of things that are hard to do with the practical ones. I think what we'll see, I, I thought um, what Spike Jones did with us with, with Where the Wild Things Are was a really, was really spot-on good idea, which was do the wild things as animatronics and then enhance the hell out of them with CGI so that you, you get the spontaneity of we, may, we, we, we captured it in the moment in front of a camera and we've edited it, but then we made everything perfect in the computer so that all the expressions and the speaking and all that we were able to perfect with, with, um, with CGI. But the effect of where the wild things are is you really do feel like they were really there because they really were there. Yeah. You know? So you do the you do the uh, the walk arounds for the macro effects and then the micro stuff is yeah. all just uh, yeah you the when you yeah when you need those expressions to be incredibly subtle and the lip sync to be perfect because you're in a close up then then absolutely use the computer get get use the CGI is it true that you're this is probably uh, oh maybe Jonah Ray told me this is it is it is it true that uh, your dad did not want to subtitle anything in Dark Crystal and just have like the Skeksis just like, rah, 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 you know, like, rah. no, it wasn't. It, it, gosh, now I don't remember. Was there subtitling? No, it was not in English and it was not subtitled. 
It was not subtitled. I thought he. I thought they. Didn't they subtitle the? Didn't they no. subtitle the movie? No. I mean, like, no. 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 The story is the yes, I. I'll tell the story. <laughs> I was there. Um, no, it was the only the only characters. Gelfling. The language of Gelfling was meant to be English. Yeah. So anybody talking to a Gelfling would, who could speak Gelfling would be speaking English. So. So Jen and Kara spoke English because they're Gelflings. Some of the pod people could uh, could speak in Gelfling mm-hmm. because they'd learn it, so they would speak English occasionally. Uh, Augra could speak Gelfling because she was so ancient and wise and could speak every language, so she could speak Gelfling, but nobody nobody else could. Oh, and I think the the, the mystic at the beginning that was. Um, Jen's master was speaking English to Jen because he was speaking Gelfling for his benefit. Right. But everything else was I in made-up languages. The Skeksis weren't... I, no, they didn't subtitle, but they did speak some English. Like there no, was a, And then what happened was he tested the movie in front of the Universal executives, and they just hated the fact that they were speaking in languages they didn't understand. So, no, my dad had to go back and dub in English for everything. That's so what every, that's, Everyone was speaking English in the end, but it was not intended to be that way. Do you think, um, did you sense that, uh, w- would he have just gone in a more and more experimental direction? I mean, it feels like if you're, if you're trying to push the boundaries of like, oh, I, I want to try to, you know, cr- develop new territory and break new ground, does it just seem like, that he would have just tried to do more and more experimental things forever? Or do you feel like he would have come back around and been like, ah, oh, I like doing kids stuff, maybe? I don't think he ever particularly liked doing kids stuff. If, if you know what I mean. I, I mean, not he, that he, he appreciated kids stuff, and he loved Sesame Street, but he didn't want to keep doing kids stuff. And, and Fraggle Rock, he developed as a kids show, knowing it's a kids show, but he... And as active as he was, he wasn't very active in Fraggle Rock. I mean, he'd come in in direct episodes, and he loved it, and he appreciated it. But really, it was Jerry Jewell and Michael Frith who were really making Well, Fraggle Yeah, because I know, I know you had said that he didn't like doing kids stuff. But I wonder, sometimes when people get older, they're like, you know, maybe I'll just go back and do stuff for the kids. No, I don't think so. I think he was going to keep doing Muppets. But he had done three Muppet movies um, when he did uh, Labyrinth. That was after the third Muppet movie which was after Dark Crystal. You know, he was he he doesn't he wouldn't so much experiment and then drop something. He would do it until he thought he was doing it the best he could and then he would drop it. Like Muppet Show, he canceled after 5 seasons. Everybody thought he was insane because it was it was the most popular show in the world and then just at the end Dallas got ahead. <laughs> which is insane. It's like, "Oh, I feel really good about the world. The Muppet Show's the number one show in the world. Now Dallas is. Now I don't feel so good about Who's the world JR? anymore." Yeah. But um but he canceled it at, right at the top of its success and and but because he thought now it was as good as it, as it was going to be. He thought, "Okay, the Muppet Show is as good as it that's good. That's great. That's what I wanted it to be. I don't want to keep making it. I'm I I don't want I don't know if I can do better." So so that's when he stopped making the Muppet Show, and I think when he did Dark Crystal, he felt like this is still I still I still want to go in this direction. So when he made Labyrinth, he was trying to address some of the criticism of Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal was very somber and dramatic, and and the, the humorous there were humorous elements in it as there is in in any life experience, but. but 
but it wasn't as funny as the audience would want it to be. So when he went back to do Labyrinth, he was he was basically responding to two um, criticisms. One was, we're not sure we want to see a movie that's all creatures. So he put in David Bowie and, and Jennifer Connelly into Labyrinth, and and he had so he had a couple people. So he was a little bit back to the dynamic of, of Muppet Show, but in a creature fantasy reality. And then he brought in Terry Jones to write the script, so that it would it would have more. It, so it would be more overtly humorous. And and so that was that was Labyrinth. And I think he would have. He would have kept going, but then after Labyrinth, he went and did the 3D Muppet movie for the Disney theme park. So it's, he wasn't stopping with the Muppets, but but you know I think he was really glad to do that 3D movie because if you've seen Muppet Vision 3D at Disney, it's it's not that he just did a another Muppet movie, short Muppet movie, and did it with 3D cameras. It was that he did a whole thing that was just about 3D. The yes. Muppets doing 3D, <laughs> and and you know, and it seemed fun and fresh for him. But yeah, I think he would have, he was always very experimental. If you go to film school, uh, many film schools will carry his film Timepiece. And yeah, Timepiece is considered, I don't know, now I can't remember because I didn't go to film school, but I, I remember people basically saying they, they felt it was, it has several techniques in it, filmic techniques that were the first, that he was, he was the first doing it in, in avant-garde filmmaking. He, would, he was the first to do edits that were seemingly... Um, uh, completely unrelated images coming in a fast series to create one coherent thought, and and if you see Timepiece, it's a, it's a very experimental piece, really successful, and he stars and it's a lovely. It's basically a study in a, 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 a meditation on the, the the trials and tribulations of time, and and it's a, it's a great piece, and it's and it's. It, it won at the time a regional Academy Award. It used to be that there weren't just the Oscars in California; what? they were all over the country. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even think he won. I think he was nominated, but because it was so unusual for its time, but it, it is considered the the first piece that then started a whole American style of avant-garde filmmaking. And um, you know, he so he was. He was he was a very progressive visualist. I mean, there was always um, interesting stuff. I don't think he would ever know what he was going to do next because he was m- almost more waiting for that thing that sparked him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know. I mean, it seems like he was he was an artist in the sense of the purest sense of like he just loved the art of it and the craft of it. And I feel like you know, the older you get and the better you get at something you know, how do you keep challenging yourself or how do you keep finding new roads to go down? Well, you know, I think especially especially he, if you've created a lot of them. Well, I think he just always was trying to... He always was trying to do something different. He was always trying to avoid um, being derivative of other people's work or even his own. So you know, after he did three Muppet movies, you know, now there's been eight Muppet movies made, but he only made three of them. And, um, you know, it's... It, it's uh, for him, he was always looking to do something different. It was all he always wanted to do something different. Again, I come back to who else would have canceled the Muppet Show after five <laughs> years, other than somebody who was very confident in the idea of no, no, no. I what I like to do is something different. That's what he well, likes that, to do. But that's, but that's but that's really that's a really important choice to make is knowing like I've given this thing everything that I have to give, and I want to go start somewhere else. Like you can't. It's so important to. I mean, no matter how the the success part isn't really the goal, and, and, and like all the material success isn't really the goal. It's 
how do you keep getting excited about something and how do you keep telling stories that you're excited about? And if you're not excited about something anymore, it doesn't matter if someone's like, here's a billion dollars. Great. I have a billion dollars that I don't know what to do with that. I'm, I'm bored. Like I still need to be creatively, you know, I still need to be creatively challenged in some way. I have a very good friend who's a big uh, writer, executive producer, and I won't say his name, but I, I love spending time with him because he's very successful and in very high demand, and he doesn't give a darn about money. <laughs> he just doesn't. So, and he has no problem saying to studio heads and network heads, you cannot convince me with your showers of gold because it means nothing to me. Well, that, you know what? That's a very... That, that, that is an instantly empowering position to have in this town, which is so driven by financial yeah. leverage. I mean, if you don't... Well, because people use it as a... as a, uh, They use it as a way of ranking you. Sure. You know, how much are you being paid is how successful you are, which is really ridiculous. And controlling you, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, if you don't get this, you're not going to get this. But if you go, well, I don't want that. And they're like, oh, uh, I don't know then. I don't know what to hold over your head. Like, well, you can't, because I don't care. Uh, I think that's a great place to be. I think that's... I think that's real success, whether or not you're even in a financial place to to do that or not. If you can say like, yeah, I don't care, then, you know, then I think and you do what you want to do. I think that's really important. What is it that what stuff do you still want to do or where, you know, what's where where's your where's your heart these days? I don't know. I sort of shift around. I've been very um, lucky that I get to bounce bounce around like nobody can i get to you know do kids programming when that makes sense i i really enjoy doing the digital puppetry trying to take that to that whole process of of in real time performing digital 3d car cgi characters but doing it in real time with camera operators working virtual cameras with performers performing animated characters and doing basically creating a fully animated product with a fully live action performance process that was super exciting to me and and getting to where we made sid the science kid that went on pbs that that's really great and i still want to do more with that i want to take that technique to to feature film level I'm, i would like to slow I, it's really impressive we were making two half hour episodes of animation a week um, oh wow! Who else can say that? We, it then goes through a post-production process that makes it take a little longer. But the pr- production process a week for two episodes, and um, and that's really impressive. It, it's like shooting live action, and I would like to take that that approach to feature films and do a feature film with digital puppetry and show what that's capable of. That I would find very engrossing. Um, but I get to jump around. I. I I did a, a, a there was a series of one hour movies for TNT a few years back that were Stephen King uh, short stories and the, and the group of movies were called Nightmares and Dreamscapes for TNT and um, and a friend of mine was the executive producer Bill Haber and it wasn't a Henson Company production but he sent me this script and said, I have this fantastic script, but it's impossible, and I don't know how to make it in a television schedule and budget. And, and that, for me, that's, that's the surefire hook. When somebody says, this thing feels impossible, I don't know, I don't know how to make it, that's the one that I, I really like. I like to try to do something that has kind of never been done, and people don't know how to do it, where you, where you literally have to invent the techniques for for the product and that was um the episode i made they were one hour movies was called battleground 
And in the end, it, w- it was an adaptation of a, of a seven-page Stephen King short story to a one-hour movie and had no dialogue. <laughs> and we put William Hurt in the lead, which was right, right there. It was like, okay, this is ridiculous. We have a one-hour movie with no dialogue, and we're casting the guy with probably one of the top three dramatic voices in the country. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> anything. never going to nope. speak. Not a word. Not a word. <laughs> no, no, not, not John Hurt, William Hurt. Oh, I'm sorry, William Hurt. <laughs> but, but Bill Hurt. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Not a word. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to. Yeah, no, that was pretty good. No, I was. <laughs> but um, and then what? But what came out was a, you know it was a really extraordinary piece. But it's horror. It was for me. It was like, oh, when do I get to do horror? It was suspense horror. It's like he's a hitman and he goes and he kills the the owner of a toy factory and then he goes home and a box of toy soldiers show up and then they come to life and they hunt him down in his apartment. Oh, that and kill sounds him. awesome. Oh, it was and it was a lot of fun to make. And TNT, TNT liked it. So my first cut was long. And I said, I've got a long cut. It's 58 minutes. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and it's meant to be 44. And, and they came in, they saw it, and they just said, oh, we love it. We'll air it without commercials. And I was like, you guys are the most fantastic. You're the, you're the most fantastic people in the world. In television, when would you have a television? First of all, when would you have a network say you're allowed to make a one-hour movie with no dialogue? And then after they spent all that money... They go, we're going to air it without selling commercials. It just, it just doesn't happen. They also had me, I had to also do a 44-minute cut but um, for them to sell around the world. But they aired it on TNT with no commercials. It was, That's really it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> was there anything you think that, uh, was there anything that your dad was ever up against that he really just wanted to do, but just the technology wasn't there yet? Um, oh, Sure. And I can't, I can't even really... T- if, if he was... Let's see. What are some of the things he would have done? He would have done... Um, he would have done, like, the large dinosaur shows and stuff like that that are on stage, like the, the great How to Train Your Dragon live yeah. show. That kind of thing would have been great because he, he was very interested in doing theatrical uh, spectaculars, but there wasn't technology that that was around that would enable him to do it as spectacularly as he would have wanted. Yeah. You know, one thing I think we would have seen if, if he had lived is you probably would have seen the most amazing theater show where it would have been character driven with, you know, the sides of the stage, literally that, you know, the breaking off from the stage and, and, and walking out into the theater. And he would have, have done something on a scale that nobody has ever thought would be possible because, but, but while he was still alive, there weren't the techniques to drive that, those big um, characters and creatures. I just got chills. I just got chills hearing about like pieces of a stage breaking off and coming to <laughs> yeah. life. Like, cause that, that, that kind of immersive, it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, I'm just, I'm an idiot because of course puppetry evolved from a live experience. And so, but so much of what we see is like, oh, it's on television or it's in film. But of course he would have wanted to go back to the theater and, and, and blow up on a massive scale you know, what was a, a much more intimate art form. Ah, oh, that had been such an amazing idea. Yeah. And, and yeah, I know who knows what else he, he would have done. I do know at, when I was a kid and it would just be, it was just sitting in our playroom literally, which is kind of scary, but um, he, he was also very into nightclubs. <laughs> the idea of them. He, um, he when, when I guess I, I was so little, 
but he wanted to he had this idea for a nightclub that was like being inside an amoeba and with the floor was polarized shapes and and he had designed this floor with these polarized panels so that it was all changing shape and moving like way and 20 years later people did start doing stuff like that but but for a long time what he, I can't remember what he called it Celia or something he had this this idea of doing you know a nightclub an evening nightclub where the where the whole room was alive and living and oh that's really and he cool. had it designed in miniature and he couldn't get anybody to get behind. I thought you were going to say, so we turned the playroom into this weird puppet nightclub. No, no, I think we, I think, no, I think, unfortunately, his beautiful model, I think, eventually came home with G.I. Joe's on it. <laughs> no, I, no, honestly, but I, it's, it's awful, some of the stuff that came home when my dad was, like, done with it. I remember... In from I guess it was from Sam and Friends. Somebody said, "Oh, Chicken Liver! What a fantastic!" It was one name of one of the character. One of the puppets was named Chicken Liver. That was such a such a fantastic puppet. I wish I knew what happened to that. And I go, "Yeah." <laughs> I remember my brother and I playing with that in the sandbox outside <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> That's Chicken Liver's gone. <laughs> Way gone. <laughs> we're to- so puppets were also for playing. They weren't just for work. Oh, not not often. I mean, the puppets didn't come home much. But if my dad was genuinely just done with something, it would end up at but home. But did you get home. separate like non henson Did he make puppets for you? Did you get non henson puppets? Like these are the puppets you can play with. Do not touch these puppets. Um. Well, if, if the do not touch these puppets would be at the studio. Oh, gotcha. They wouldn't have come home at all. If In they fact, were home. He, he seldom ever worked at home. I only remember him when my little sister was born. I remember him sculpting a dog puppet. He was, he was doing a puppet, and he, and he was sculpting the head at home. And honestly, that's the only time I saw him doing anything other than some script notes sure. uh, at, at home. He, he went to the studio to, to do everything if he brought home a puppet he literally he brought it home and threw it in the sandbox because he was done with it and thought maybe we would like to play with it uh, and there was, and that didn't happen a lot now he was very creative in the house though we would do crazy things like and it's still the 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 house we grew up in greenwich connecticut the owners have carefully maintained the kitchen bathroom that when when we were young my dad had this idea that all the kids would do mosaics we're all going to do mosaic walls i guess i don't know if he'd been he'd been to europe recently (laughs) we're going to do italian mosaics so there's a bathroom in greenwich connecticut where each kid did a section of these little fancy mosaics it's pretty impressive and i i went back recently and asked if i could come in and see the bathroom and there it was still there and the kitchen was all the cabinets my dad made and painted all special and they protected all of all of it so he at at home he still did a lot of craftsmanship and he built the most beautiful uh doll houses for my sisters my two older sisters he built one for each of them that he built at home in the work. So he had a workshop at home, a pretty thorough one, but he used all that to make us toys. And I had a great rubber band gun. I remember that he made fantastic. It, would, it was all wooden, beautifully crafted, but you would load it with rubber bands and then the rubber yeah. band would hit and it would held, held in the trigger. And, and anyway... But I, I would, I would, I would, I would see like giving that to a kid and then instantly regretting it. And when you get <laughs> pelted in the face with rubber bands, 
No, that's right. Well, actually, yeah, my dad was actually the type who really didn't appreciate getting shot in the face with <laughs> a rubber band. In fact, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to ever do that. That would be definitely crossing the line. <laughs> do you think this sort of, uh, do, you, do, do you think the kind of like the mad genius archetype, are they too serious, you know, or is there ever any fun or is it like, no, 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 I'm just super focused. I just have to do this thing. Oh no, my dad was. Oh no, he was a prankster, and and he and Don Celine and Frank loved to prank each other all the time. So he was very serious, and he would he often would work for three days in a row. Like for Sesame Street in the beginning, they did all the animated pieces as well as all the puppetry, all those number films and stuff. Oh yeah, he and Don and Frank, even though they were the puppet people would over a weekend and they'd compete with each other like Don would do his number 12 film and it would be fantastic and then my dad would be like oh, I'm going to do number 9 <laughs> and then Frank would be like oh, I'm going to do number 3 and beat all of you <laughs> but they would work just like for 72 hours in, in a row but they always were having fun I remember one time I went in and Don was in the work Don, Don was the head puppet builder and then Frank was the performer. And they all did everything, but my dad was the boss. Frank, Don was really head of the puppets. Frank was really the main performer. And um, but I went in one time, and Don, who was this lovely, wonderful, eccentric guy, had a big handlebar mustache, and he always had hamsters, gerbils. The little ones are gerbils, gerbils. And he had a gerbil cage with a slinky coming up out of it, and then the slinky would go across the room. And so his gerbils would be in the slinkies, bouncing all over the place. And, and, and they would hang by their tail above his head while he was working, and then drop off onto his head. Because a slinky, they can get out. Sure. And, you know, they can get through the side of it. So he, I loved him for that. And his hobby that he would do on the weekend is take a 16-millimeter camera and go launch model rockets. So this is back when there weren't really those testers model rockets much, but he would, he would make these rockets that had like... T- eight or ten of those tester engines and then he put like a stick of dynamite in him <laughs> and he would go film it and, and he'd, he'd fill it with like talcum powder with a half a stick of dynamite in the middle and put engines and he'd film he'd shoot these rockets under the air and blow them up <laughs> and I also thought he was really cool for that but I walked in one time and he was walking around the, the workshop and he was like shh is your father coming and I said yeah he's down parking the car he said, oh. and he's going all around the room with this long elastic. Remember the airplanes where you'd want yeah, yeah, yeah. a long, yeah. long strip of elastic? He's going all around the room, all around the room. And then, and then he goes back to his table where he's building, and he stood, you know, where he builds puppets. He stood, and he put this fluffy thing under his shoe, and he said, okay, shh, stay over there, stay over there. And then my dad comes into the room, and, uh, and my dad walks into the workshop, and Don just lifts up his foot, and this little creature that he'd made goes zipping all over the room because he stretched it and made my father just jump through his skin. They were, and then my father was jumpy. He was actually a jumpy person, and they all loved nothing more than to make my dad uh, jump. But they, no, they worked really hard, but they had a really good sense of humor, and, and they'd always shoot late, and uh, any of them will tell you, and I saw it at 2 o'clock in the morning when you were meant to wrap at 7 p.m., but you're still shooting at 2 o'clock in the morning, you would often find on a Muppet shoot just everybody just laughing hysterically. You can't, because the last take went wrong, and then somebody d- did something, and it was so stupid that everybody's laughing, and you, can hard, you can't even work because you're just laughing so hard, and you're punch drunk because you've been awake so long. And honestly, I think that he, he worked very hard, but he loved to really play and enjoy it. He was, he was a very... Um, 
uh, funny guy. And, and is there ever? Uh, it feels like there should be a, a, a biopic or something, right? Or is well, that never? Do you think that? It, well, that there was the the Muppet Man script that that was the what do they call it? the blacklist? The on, it was a star on the blacklist a few years ago, and. And we've been trying to develop that, and and it's a, it is a really cool idea. I don't, I don't know the first, the script that was written was actually a lot of fun, but my my mother read it and she said, and I said, so mom, what do you think? And she was like, oh, it's fantastic. I'm a star. Of course, none of this is true. <laughs> 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 I love it. They've made me a star. <laughs> um, but, and, and actually, that's probably uh, some of it was true, based kind of, sort of on sure. truth. But there was an awful lot of invention. So it's, we're trying to make it a little bit more realistic. But the, the Jim Henson biography that's out now—it's not authorized by us, but it—but it is accurate. It's it, there's a lot of good stuff in that. I mean, when people want to learn about Jim Henson, you get his bio. The biography that's out now is is pretty doggone thorough. Oh, okay, good. Well, I uh, I've adored working on that lot near you guys and. I was bummed when we had to move, but we just we expanded. you got too big. Well, we expanded beyond because we were in this little bungalow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I and know. then we it was like you know everyone had an office, and then it was like two people to an office, and then like we took out the what it was like the it was like a little house, and so it was like now the dining room part had like four people in it, and then the back bedroom part had like five people in it. And it like, <laughs> so we just had to we just had, we just kind of we got a little a little a little like a little tight for the space, but. Uh, but I adored, I adored working there. It was so much fun to just drive there every, you know, every day that I was there. I'm like, I can't believe I get to work here. I know, it's uh, a great lot. Uh, but uh, so Jim Henson's uh, Creature Challenge is on Sci-Fi Now, Tuesdays at 10, you said. Maybe. <laughs> not your... in my house, but that's what I've been telling everyone. <laughs> they told me to tell everyone Tuesdays at 10, but not in my house. It's Tuesdays at 9 in my house. Yeah, sometime Tuesday evening. But if you haven't watched the first one, just TiVo it, because what will happen is next Tuesday... Actually, they've already told me that on Sunday they're going to play them all again okay. in, the, in the morning. And that's kind of what sci-fi does is, you know, as it's picking up momentum, they'll, they, they'll keep sort of doing marathons so that, sure. so that you can grab it either on your TiVo or you can, or you can catch up watching Let people it. catch up. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's really, really, really great talking to you, and, and, and I hope that we can catch up uh, off mic and, like, have lunch or something. All right. I love your dog. Oh, isn't that? She's the best. She's gorgeous. She's peeing on something somewhere. (laughs) She doesn't. She's, she is very, she's very muppety. I mean, like she's very fluffy. No, and the one blue eye. She's got the one blue eye. (laughs) And, um, is, has no awareness that her teeth are essentially like, uh, tiny needles that, you know, when she's, if you're sitting on the couch and she'll start licking your foot or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're just like, God damn it! <laughs> she just doesn't know, you know? She just doesn't, she just doesn't know. The relationship to her and Chloe's other dog, Diego, who is, she's already bigger than. He's, he's just, he look, he's like a miniature deer. He's a little chihuahua. And she just, like, he'll just be sitting there and just the meaty part of his leg is open, like right where a dog's leg looks like a chicken leg. <laughs> And she just like, just like right on that meaty part of his leg with those needle teeth, and it's uh, he hates the shit out of her. He's, he's not. He was not pleased. It was sort of like your situation where he was a totally cool dog, and then we brought, and then, and then when you realize like 
so she's going to occupy this space. Then it was like, I've never seen him get vicious, but he just... That's how they establish their dominance. Yep. Uh, well, it was my pleasure to come. I've had a fun time. Yo, good, man. You're really good but to we'll see catch you. we'll Please, I'd love to. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. The end. Katie. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Carbonite.com. Carbonite is online backup made easy. Plans start at just $59.99 a year. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code Nerdist to get two bonus months with purchase. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.